Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you uh, for the privilege of being here to share God's word with you. As Nathan said, my name is Jason Beeman. I'm the lead pastor at uh, Green River Bible Church. Um, I want to look into a topic today uh, that is not at all an, a new issue, and yet one that remains prevalent and seems to be increasing, uh, one that is particularly prevalent even in our area of the country, and that is uh, the topic of apostasy. Um, that's a pretty intense subject for a guest speaker to tackle, I'll admit that. Um, but this is a message that uh, the Lord laid on my heart uh, several, several months ago that I have given, and um, it seems to me something that we need to uh, discuss and uh, be informed on, uh, because again, it is a problem and this grieves me to say out loud, but this is a problem in, in the church of today, uh, particularly in, in America. Whether it's prosperity gospel, progressive Christianity, universalism, or something similar, the rejection of clear biblical doctrine is becoming an issue, a major issue for the American church. Um, in general, we are departing from the truth of the scriptures, and we do so to our own peril. I've told my congregation in the past that if we cease to preach the scriptures, if we cease to hold to the scriptures as the only rule of faith and practice, we in essence cease to be the church. And what is grievous also in this is, is the lack of action. Perhaps it's because we don't want to offend, we don't want to use people's names, we don't want to be mean, whatever the case may be, in many instances, nothing is done about it. And I hold that this comes down to being afraid. We fear men rather than we fear God. And I do realize I am painting with a bit of a broad brush here, so please know I'm not intended to make any specific indictments and to any specific church here, but the truth remains that generally speaking, the church has lost its power and we no longer seem to be putting up a fight when we are clearly called by God to do exactly that in his word. We are called to contend for the faith, to do battle, to be courageous and to guard what God has entrusted us with, which is his very own gospel. So I want to look at the book of Jude this morning and discuss this topic in a message that I've titled, Contending for the Faith. Uh, so if you want to make your way, if you haven't already, to the book of Jude, uh, we're going to look through the whole book this morning, which sounds pretty impressive until you realize there's only 25 verses. Uh, but contending for the faith, contending for the faith, this is becoming increasingly important. And that is not to say that there was ever a moment where it wasn't. But as our world continues to spiral out of control morally, and we get further and further from the scriptures, we need to know the importance as the church of remaining rooted in them under their authority, knowing them, submitting to God, to, submitting to them as God's revealed word, because it is very easy for worldly thinking to infiltrate the church. And our only defense against this is a knowledge of the word of God. Jude writes to a church who is facing enemies outside of their ranks in the form of Rome. Rome was persecuting them. Nero was the emperor. He was an incredibly wicked and demented man. 
Uh, He was one of the most avid and brutal persecutors of the early church. Most famously, he deflected blame for the burning of Rome onto the Christians. And it was during his reign that the apostles Paul and Peter were martyred, likely as a result of the persecution of Nero and the burning of Rome. So, of course, there's the need to contend in that regard. The church who stands up against the culture is going to face some kind of persecution. And there are many Christians in this world who face this from the highest levels of their government. But there weren't just enemies outside the church, sadly. But there were also those in the church. This is the topic that Jude has chosen to address, as we'll see in a moment. As I watch our world become more and more immoral, I am reminded that I will always know where the world stands in regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no ambiguity there. The world and all of its systems and its ideologies has always hated the gospel and everything about it and will continue to do so until Christ returns. So I would urge that the greater concern here is not so much the world around the church as it is the infiltration of the world into the church in the form of false doctrines and false teachers. I'm from Ohio originally. When I first moved to New England six and a half or so years ago, uh, we would go back to visit friends and family in Ohio. And some of our first visits were were interesting to talk with people from back home when they would ask us questions about our ministry and things like that. Um, At the Midwest, if you don't know, we're kind of like the JV Bible Belt. Uh, We go to church just because it's like the right thing to do. Um, It's what we've always done. Mom and dad always brought us to church, whatever. Um, And at my previous church, I was an associate pastor in a rather large church, and my responsibility was to make connections with our new guests. So whenever we had a new family, I would always go and make sure I introduced myself to them, and I would ask them, you know, why'd you come, whatever. One of the families that I asked, the the dad's response was literally, I liked your sign, so I figured I'd come check out your church. Um, You don't get that here. Um, and that, sounds, that might sound good, but honestly, what that does is it results in a, in a shallow faith, and that's really a breeding ground for apostasy. And it's just as bad in the Midwest as it is here in New England. But when I came home to visit family, they would treat me as though I had just come from like the darkest mission field that the world has ever known. Like, oh, is it ministry so hard there? Like, well, yeah, it's, it's rough. You know, well, what's it like dealing with the liberals and whatnot, you know? It's like, well, I mean, the hardest part of ministry here is, it's, I, I love answering that question, by the way, because they would expect me to say something like, in fact, oh, you know, dealing with the liberalism and whatever, because, you know, New England's got a history and a um, reputation for that. But I would tell them that my biggest challenge in ministry is actually the same challenge that they have. It's not the world. It's not the liberals. It's the world and the church. It's people who profess faith in Christ that then actively and even passionately teach and live in complete contradiction to the scriptures and to their profession. That's not just a problem in New England, I would tell them. That's your problem too. And they're not expecting that answer. But this is exactly why Jude writes to warn about those who would do this thing, to pervert the scriptures and the gospel while simultaneously professing faith in Christ. We know this is not a new problem because many of the New Testament epistles were written explicitly for this purpose. 
As long as the gospel has existed, there have been those who would pervert it, who would reject it, who would teach contrary to it, all while presenting themselves as members of the flock of God. Such people are known as apostates. I've used this word a few times, so let me define it before we go any further. Apostasy is defined as a rejection of a formerly held belief. It's to turn away from truth in favor of something false. An apostate then is someone who teaches a false gospel and who perverts the scriptures, who has the appearance of being godly, but denies that godliness in their teaching and even in their own lives. We are constantly warned in scripture about such men and the eternal danger that they present. So this morning I want to address this topic of how we contend for the faith against such apostates. And we'll begin then by reading the passage from Jude and studying it together. Jude uh, 1 all the way through 25. I'm reading from the English Standard Version uh, this morning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment at the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when Michael the archangel, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. They said to you in the last days, there will come scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up 
in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. So, that's out there. It would appear that Jude sat down with the intention of writing on a completely different subject. The topic of salvation. That's a good topic to discuss. I think we can all agree. But instead, he felt it necessary to write concerning how to contend for the faith. Jude is under compulsion to write on this subject matter. There's an urgent need to contend for the faith. And this word contend carries with it this idea of wrestling and fighting and struggling. It was an athletic metaphor at its core. God has, through Jude, called upon his people to this very day to literally fight against apostasy, against worldliness, to not allow these things into our churches. What makes apostasy so dangerous in particular is that it will often contain a small element of truth. But it is always truth twisted. It's often taught by charismatic and even seemingly nice guys. And yet those who would pervert the gospel, however, who would twist the scriptures regardless of how nice or welcoming or charismatic they may seem, are nothing more than wolves disguised as sheep. As we said earlier, enemies from outside the church, these are pretty easy to spot. But some of the most nefarious lies come from those who would profess a faith in Christ while teaching in opposition to him. We need to know how to contend against such apostates to protect both ourselves and our flocks. There is an objective, glorious, and eternal truth that has been entrusted to the people of God that our enemy would seek to undermine and pervert. This truth is worth fighting for. It is worth striving for with every ounce of energy given us by the Spirit of God. It's worth enduring loss for. It is worth teaching. It is worth living. It is worth sharing with our children and raising them in. Because it is from the very mouth of the living God. And may we never ever forget this. So with this in mind, I want to examine our text and offer us two ways we can contend for the faith in this way. And the first is this. We can contend for the faith by knowing our place before God. There's something that you may have noticed in the very first verse here. Jude identifies himself as a servant of Christ and the brother of James. Jude was Jesus' brother as well, his half-brother. The three of them were siblings. Now, if I had something important to tell someone, it would seem as though identifying myself as the blood relative of Jesus Christ would be what I would want to do. That's how I'm going to get people's attention. And yet, Jude does not do this. Instead, he chooses to identify himself as a servant of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Let's consider what the scriptures tell us about our relationship with Jesus. It's true that Jesus is our brother. Hebrews 2.11, Romans 8.29, Mark 3.34, they all make that reference. It's true that Jesus is our friend. 
Jesus makes that reference himself in John 15 on several occasions. So I'm not saying these things are not true. Jude was Jesus' brother, and he could have claimed that with no argument and no issue. But what he teaches us and how he identifies himself is that before he is anything else, he is a servant of the living God, of Jesus Christ. And this is true of us as well. Before we are anything else, we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we forget that, is when we start to wander off into bad theology and outright false teaching. How so? Well, let's think of it this way. I have several good friends whose counsel I would trust if they offered it. But I don't have to listen to a single one of them if I don't want to. Because I am on equal footing with my friends. Listening is a choice I get to make. I am not on equal footing with Christ. And failing to listen to Him will be my undoing. We may choose not to listen to Christ, but we do so to our own peril because He's not just our friend. He is our Lord and we are His servants. One of the more subtly dangerous problems that I see in modern evangelicalism is this idea that Jesus is my buddy. I can hang out with Him. I can tell Him some of my problems, but I don't really have to listen to Him. He's a part of my life, but I'm in charge. When we forget our place before the living God, this is where apostasy starts. It is true that Jesus is my friend, but if Jesus is just my friend, then his word to me is nothing more than suggestions I can heed when it suits me. This concept of Christ is is nothing more than a friend. What is this? It is a truth twisted out of its context to mean something it was not meant to mean. This is how we defined apostasy a moment ago. The moment Christ is removed from his rightful place as Lord and his word abandoned, we have begun down the path of apostasy because we have now taken authority over our own lives. We have put ourselves in authority over the word of God. Every false teaching is rooted in a rejection of the objective authoritative truth of God's word. In light of this, let us then understand that the best and the first way that we can contend for the faith is to know our place as servants of God and to teach that to others. Parents, teach this to your children. Fathers especially. Lead by example in your families that you are a servant of Christ. Elders, teach your flock that Christ is Lord and His Word is the only rule of faith and practice. If you are discipling someone, Teach them that Christ is Lord and His Word is the only rule of faith and practice. Our best weapon in the fight of the faith is the sword of the Spirit which God has given to us and we have to keep it sharp and to keep it ready. We live in dark and dangerous days spiritually and that darkness doesn't just come from outside. Sadly, it comes from inside in the form of wolves who have invaded the flocks of God with no intention of sparing them. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. Paul is preparing to depart. And he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is what we are up against. Those who would seek to rob the gospel of its power and the word of God of its authority. The deposit of the gospel has been entrusted to us and we must fight 
to keep it. Hence why Jude writes in verse 3, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. As a pastor, I can identify with you. I've had an idea for a sermon. I've gotten about halfway through writing it, and God said, no, maybe let's go a different direction here. But it appears that Jude intended on doing a theological treatment of salvation, but a greater need has arisen. What I want us to see is that Jude recognized a desperate need to educate the church on the truth of who and what these apostates were and what they taught. It's a warning as well as an encouragement. It's as though he is saying, listen, there was something that I wanted to write to you that was important, but we have bigger problems that you need to be aware of. There are people making their way into our flocks and perverting the teachings of Christ. More specifically, Judas instructing them on the faith of fate of those who would reject Christ. In verses 5 through 7, he cites several examples and none of them are good. Example one, Israel. God took Israel out of bondage, saved them from slavery and oppression. He did signs and wonders, ten plagues, plundering the Egyptians on the way out. But they didn't even get to the Red Sea before they started complaining. Then they made golden calves and worshipped them. On more than one occasion post-Exodus, God had to punish them for their rebellion. There were those within the covenant community of God who became apostate and rejected the God who saved them and showed them mercy. Example two, fallen angels. Jude explains that there were angels who left heaven and were then kept under judgment for this. Now there's some who would debate that what exactly this is in reference to. Some argue it's going back to Genesis 6 where the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men. Some argue it's a reference to Satan and the fall and the angels who fell with him. But that's not Jude's point here. His point is that Apostasy comes at a cost, even for a heavenly being. Example three, Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroyed an entire city for their sexual immorality and their perversion. Sexual perversion that even today is encouraged and taught to our children. And God help us, is celebrated by people in the church. Who are we, I ask, who have been entrusted with the eternal truth only to defy the word of the living God? And yet here today we see churches living in open rebellion. This comes at a cost. And I fear that many have mistaken God's patience for acceptance. And the examples that Jude has listed here serve as a warning that a terrible, terrible fate awaits those who would pervert the word of our God. It is these who will cry out, Lord, Lord, only to be told, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So what do we take from Jude's examples? Apostasy comes in different forms. We have people who knew God, who witnessed his works in Israel. We have beings who were in the presence of God and saw his glory in the angels. We have people who never knew God and lived according to the flesh. Each of them rebelled against God in their own way with the exact same results. Justified condemnation. To rebel against God is to face condemnation. This is meant by Judah's warning to the church. Apostates who would teach against the word of God can expect the same fate as those in the examples he has listed. And really at the heart of all of this is our desire to be God. We have forgotten our place at the foot of his throne. 
We have forgotten his place in our hearts. And we wish to supplant him and sit on his throne. This is the natural desire for the worldly man. And apostates are worldly men. And when they deny the authority of the word, they have supplanted God in their own hearts. When they teach against his word, they have supplanted God in their hearts and are teaching others to do the same. In their pride, they forget their place before God Almighty, and this is blasphemous. And may we never make this eternally fatal error. The importance, an important part of knowing God is knowing the fate of those who would blaspheme him. Because in this we see God's glory revealed in his justice. And we are reminded exactly how seriously God takes sin and the honor of his name. It is a warning to us to never stray from the truth. And if the idea of departing from the truth, from the objective truth of God's word were to ever come into our minds... If we were ever to get to the place where we would doubt the validity and the sufficiency of God's word. Jude then encourages us to think twice. By examining the fate of those who have done it in the past. And I don't know about you, but it is frightening to me. It's a stark reminder and it seems harsh. But it's actually an act of grace to be reminded of the severity of defying the God of the universe. It's meant to be a deterrent to us. The author of Hebrews also rightly reminds us in chapter 10, verse 31, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We should also keep in mind that this is the fate that all humanity deserved. We deserved wrath. We deserved condemnation. But for those in Christ, we have received grace and mercy. It has been lavished upon us, the scriptures tell us. If God were only just and not also loving, gracious, and merciful, then every single person who has ever lived would be condemned. And we would have no grounds to argue against God for this. So may we not forget the immeasurable grace and mercy shown to us in the cross of Christ. Let us never forget our place before the living God. We were enemies. We were sinners rightly condemned. But in Christ alone and the atoning sacrifice he has made for us in our place as our substitute, we are counted now as justified. This is not only a warning from Jude, though. There is an encouragement here as well. Back in verse 1, he said that those who were called and beloved in Christ will be kept in Christ. And here's the encouragement. If we are in Christ, we will be kept in Christ. Our salvation is secure because Jesus secures it. If our salvation and our justified standing before God relied upon us in any way, we would lose it. But because we are kept in Christ, we will never be lost. And I encourage all of us today to know and remember our places before the Lord. We are servants of the Lord Jesus before anything else. We are under his loving authority and called by him to know him and obey him for his glory, but also for our good. But also know this, you are loved. And this love was proven to you in the bearing of the cross. And because of that cross and the righteousness which Christ has given to you freely, you are saved and will be kept in Christ. This is the hope that we stand in as we contend for the faith once and for all. No matter how hard it gets, we know how the story ends. It ends with Christ as the victor and we victorious in him. So we contend for the faith by knowing our place before God. But secondly, we contend for the faith by being watchful. One of the characteristics of these apostates that we fight against is their cunning. 
In verse 4, Jude says that they have crept in unnoticed. An apostate is going to, in many ways, look the part, sound the part, and act the part. Remember again, all apostasy contains a kernel of truth. And we have to be wise to this in order to combat it. I would liken it to dealing with a spy. Spies learn the language. They learn the culture of the nations that they will infiltrate so they can creep in unnoticed and do their work. Apostates work the exact same way. They know church language. They know church culture. They know what to say. They know how to act. And we need to be able to spot them then. We need to call them out by name, exposing the unfruitful works of darkness. And we need to inform others about them. So how do we do this? Let's first address how to spot them. I want you to listen to how Jude describes them. Verses 12 and 13. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So I want to examine each of these images because there is something Jude is telling us by using these. So first, hidden reefs. If you know anything about boating, this makes total sense to you. If you see something sticking out of the water, you know to steer your boat away from it. No one wants to intentionally damage their vessel and become a shipwreck. It's not the rocks you can see that are your biggest problems. It's the ones that you can't. According to Jude, these guys are like the reefs and the rocks that you cannot see. They lurk just under the surface, making a shipwreck of their faith and the faith of those who would follow them. Remember, what makes apostasy so dangerous, and I'm gonna, I, I've said this three times now, so I hope you're catching this, is that it will often contain an element of truth, but it is always truth twisted, truth out of context. An example would be an intense focus on one aspect of God's character to the exclusion of others. Those who would focus, say, on the love of God to the exclusion of His justice and His wrath and His holiness will often affirm and celebrate what Scripture condemns in the name of love. In some instances, it leads to outright universalism where everybody goes to heaven whether they believe in Christ or not because after all, God is love. The Bible tells us that. From a biblical perspective, this is a perversion of God's love. But it is based on the truth that God is love. Truth out of context. Truth twisted. It is the hidden reef that is the foundation of apostasy. Secondly, shepherds feeding themselves. A true shepherd cares for the flock while apostates only care about themselves and their glory. They consider themselves to be the smartest ones in the room who don't like to be questioned. And they will avoid people who know their Bibles in favor of those who do not. You'll find over time that what they teach ends up benefiting them more than anybody else. They will play on people's emotions. They will use past hurts and doubts against them. You'll hear things like everyone can come in. Have you been hurt in the past? No one will hurt you here. We love everyone. If you just have more faith, sow a financial seed, insert whatever you want here is going to happen. This is how an apostate reels people in so they can exploit them and take advantage of them for their own gain. At the end of the day, an apostate does not feed sheep with truth. He starves the sheep with half-truths and lives while they benefit. Thirdly, waterless clouds swept along by the wind. Their teaching has absolutely no substance. And it will change 
with the culture. You'll hear apostates ask a lot of questions, but they don't answer them. They ask a lot of questions, offer no answers. Maybe you've heard things like, what does this mean to you? What is your experience? How does this make you feel? Does the Bible really say that, or have we just misunderstood it? This is all an attempt to sound provocative and deep, but it is nothing more than a catering to the culture by stripping the Bible of its authority and supplanting it with human emotions that change with the direction of the wind. The heart is deceptive and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17.9 tells us. We cannot trust how we feel because our feelings are subjective and even misleading. We might feel something and have no basis for that and simply not realize it. And if our emotions steer us, if our emotions determine what we do and what we believe, we will do and believe wrongly. When we cease again to be governed by the scriptures, we cease to be the church. Tragically, for our culture today, the church has lost its understanding of sola scriptura, scripture alone. This is our only rule of faith and practice. This is what we, what we conform ourselves to. All these questions might sound provocative and they might sound deep, but there's no substance and there's no foundation because there's no biblical authority there. Fourthly, fruitless trees in late autumn. The apostate teaching has the appearance of truth but has no evidence of it. One of my favorite family activities during the fall is we go up to Pine Hill Orchard in Colerain and we like to get apples because my wife makes apple butter and apple pie and apple this and apple that. and It's, it's my favorite time of year for that reason. I get like apple everything. But here's the thing. I, I know an apple tree is an apple tree because of the fruit that it bears. If you put an apple tree with no fruit on it side by side, next to a tree of similar size, pick a tree, I don't know. I, I would not be able to tell them apart. You can tell what a tree is by the fruit that it bears. Other than that, they'll look similar. An apostate will give the appearance of godliness, but will have no discernible fruit of it in what they teach or in their own lives. Fifthly, wild waves. They and their teaching are destructive. We know water is one of the most formidable forces on the earth. A tsunami will utterly destroy anything in its path. The waves of the ocean will sink a ship if they're high enough. And so it is with apostasy. Their teaching is eternally devastating to themselves as well as those who would receive it. And then finally, wandering stars. Before GPS, stars were used by maritime navigators to get them to their destination. But they had to know how the stars would be positioned in certain seasons, or they would follow them incorrectly and be lost. Ships lost at sea are not heard from again. They are presumed to be dead. Apostate teaching is like poor navigation. It's only going to get us lost. Such teachers, as well as those who would follow them, are assured destruction every bit as much as those in Christ are assured salvation. For these reasons, we must be watchful. We must warn others to be watchful. We must know the word of God and we must teach the word of God. We must persevere in the hope of coming glory and encourage others in this way. Verses 17 and 18. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last days there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. We've been warned that this was going to happen. 
And indeed, it has. Paul has said elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 2.3, Let no one deceive you, for that day will not come unless the great rebellion comes first. The amount of false teaching we have access to in our technological age is staggering and concerning. In just a few clicks, you can be exposed to falsehood. And yet what I would take from this, and I would encourage you to take from this, is that even though this is true, the scriptures tell us, they warn us that it would come. We still serve a sovereign God. A sovereign God who will not give up his throne. A sovereign God who is already one in Christ. And that even this is a part of his perfect plan. Now we must ask, how do we address apostates when we encounter them? Jude has warned us of the consequences of apostasy. We need to both warn them and pray for their repentance. Verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I say again, pray for repentance. Pray that they would come to their senses and publicly recant. Pray for those who are under their teaching, that their eyes would be opened, that they would turn from that and turn to the true gospel. They are very near the judgment of God and they do not realize how close they are. The goal of confronting any kind of sin, including false teaching, is not merely to shame someone, but is to lead them to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. No one is outside of God's reach, but they need to hear the gospel and they need to repent. They need to be confronted with what they teach and those under them need to be confronted with what they believe. Contending for the faith means preaching it to those who would profess to believe but teach contrary. To those who would profess to believe and yet willingly sit under teaching which contradicts God's word. And this is perhaps the hardest preaching that there is to do. And yet God calls upon his people to be ambassadors of truth in this way. And I would also remind us that if we oppose such things, we oppose the enemy himself, and he does not give up ground lightly. We are at war right now, and our enemy is crafty. So I challenge you then to stand firm in the Lord, persevere to the end, and know that our Lord Jesus is sovereign and has all authority. He is surprised by nothing. He has authority over everything. He is able to keep us from stumbling into apostasy by his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. We have the assurance of knowing that he will present us blameless before God, covered in his righteousness in this life. We will toil, we will strive, we will contend, we will do battle against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6. But at the end of the day, when it's all over, we know how it ends. Christ wins. He's already won. And in him you are victorious. So do not lose heart. Do not grow weary in doing good. For in time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Because the Lord God is faithful to keep you in Christ and will establish you and will guard you in Christ against Satan and his schemes to the praise of his glory. So as we contend, let us rest and find hope in this glorious truth. So I've titled today's message, Contending for the Faith. We looked at Jude 1-25 through and saw two ways that we do this. 
We contend for the faith by knowing our place before God, and we contend for the faith by being watchful. It's my prayer for you that the Lord would bless your church, that he would guard you, that he would keep you in Christ, that you would have eyes to see and to discern the lies of the enemy. And may the Lord give you the power and the courage by his spirit to endure and to stand firm to the end.